So this week um, was the 25th anniversary of my ordination. And um, it was a, a wonderful week. The actual day was Wednesday. Last Sunday, you all recognized me. And I just wanted to begin my words today by thanking you for that. Um, for the many who sent cards, I'm going through them slowly and intentionally, taking a lot of time doing them. There's a mountain of them, so thank you. And then to honor in worship, you know, <laughs> uh, I am so aware of my own failures and shortcomings and sinfulness that I know that I don't ever need to be put on any kind of pedestal, but I am grateful to be recognized, so thank you for that. Um, I've said uh, that last week, you know, that ministry is a team sport, and on Wednesday, um, our staff, your staff at church here, gave a lunch, a brunch for me, and that was amazing. Um, you need to know that um, our staff, for me, is like family, and, um, and that was an amazing morning. I'm so grateful to them. I don't feel like I can at all be recognized apart from them. They do the bulk of the work around here. I feel like I mostly show up. And so I would ask all of you to recognize them. If you know somebody on staff, to send them a note, to drop them an email, to uh, maybe send them a card. Because, again, they deserve the recognition as well. It is indeed a team sport. And shameless plug, ministry is a team sport, folks. If you are not involved in something here at Sheridan in our ministry, join us. We do this, as our series says, we do this together. So Wednesday was the actual 25th anniversary of my ordination. It was the actual day. And I remember um, that day well. Uh, I was ordained in, at Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Wymore, Nebraska. And um, most of my peers, uh, they, uh, my seminary classmates, they all got ordained at their congregation of their childhood. I didn't have that kind of relationship with uh, my home congregation. And the folks in Wymore were showing, showing such belief in me I wanted to be ordained there to kind of reciprocate my belief in them. And it was a glorious day. I mean, I was just so humbled by it, and I think it went well for all involved. And when people over the years have asked me about um, my path to ordination, you know, I went to seminary in the south side of Chicago at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, and then I moved to, to Wymore, Nebraska, in Gage County, and everybody says, hey, you know, how did you do that? Which to me was just kind of this, odd, you know, just this odd question because it almost sounds insulting like, um, how'd you do that? Like, you're either not good enough or the place you came from is not good enough or your place is going to not good enough. And, and I get it. The culture of the places are all different. And so um, uh, I just, I, when people ask how it went, I was like, it was fine. But over the years, I've thought a lot about why it was fine. Why was it fine? Why did it go so well when the cultures of the places that I moved to were so different? And there are two reasons, and I'm going to talk about those two reasons today. The first reason is because I had moved so much that I kind of was forced to understand who I was. Um, any of you who've moved a lot can have an, uh, an appreciation of that. Um, if you've never had been forced to kind of be able to articulate how you're different than other people, then you just kind of assume that we're all the same. And some things do make us all the same. But in other ways, we're very different. You know, I think of the four places I moved to um, before I came here. Um, and they're all very different from one another. 
right? Just to, just to be clear, I moved five times in my childhood through my broken childhood, and actually as a young adult, I moved 10 more times. <laughs> and so I always said I wanted to go to my second call to be a place where I could stay for a long time. And by the grace of God, it's been 21 years, right? Because I had a pretty woebegone life. So the four places I lived before I got to Sheridan were Lake Forest, Illinois, which is the wealthiest suburb of Chicago. Uh, you know, movies have been done, books have been written about this community. Um, then I moved from there to the south side of Chicago, which was very different, Hyde Park. It's a tough neighborhood, but a stable neighborhood. However, it's surrounded by some of the worst ghetto in the city of Chicago. And then I moved on my internship to Austin, Texas, where there's a lot of high-tech cowboys. And then I moved from there back to seminary and then to Wymore, Nebraska, where I learned a lot about what ultimately was on the sign as I entered the state for the first time, the good life. I learned about the good life in rural Nebraska. So when I was at every place, some people said this to me, um, although most people just showed it by their actions. They're kind of like, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> and I kind of got to learn that to be true, yes. And, and yet that was a helpful thing because if you're not from around here, you kind of go, well, what is this that I'm at, them that I am with, and why am I different, and what does that mean about me? Well, every place I was, I knew I wasn't from there. When I lived in Lake Forest at 25 years old, I did not have a father who could buy me the latest BMW, nor did I get a new wardrobe every season. When I moved to the south side of Chicago, I learned really quickly that you never make eye contact with a person on the street, and you certainly don't talk to them. We are all supposed to be anonymous here, and because it's a dangerous world out there, if you talk to somebody, they don't know your intentions, and they get really freaked out. I moved from there, ironically, to Austin, Texas, where when you are in the grocery store line, the woman behind you, she's going to just tell you all about her life and what's going on in the world. And then I moved back to seminary and then down to Wymore, where I realized I never knew that there were places in the world where you can leave your car parked on the street and leave the keys in the ignition. I had no clue about that, right? After confirmation was over, every Wednesday night when I was pastor at Our Saviors, I wanted to save the rural family parents from having to drive all in. So I'd load up my car, and, and I would drive them around the country. It was a great way to get to know people. It was a great way to get to know the area and get to know the kids. And underneath my seat, there was this remnant of having lived in the city. And the kids saw it, and they about laughed me out of county. It was this. In the early 90s... <laughs> Before car alarms, you bought one of these and put it on your steering wheel. It's a derivation of the club. And they just thought it was the funniest thing they had ever seen because they just always left their keys in the ignition, right? So again, every place that I've ever been, it forced me to take a look at myself to know exactly kind of who I am. That can be lonely at times, for sure, this is where it touches Dr. Murthy's research, that loneliness is a big part of our world and a big part of our life and our existence, and yet at the same time, it can also, if you use it right, be very instructive. How am I in relation to other people? I mean, I learned to realize that 
Other people are just different. They're not better or worse. Other ways of living aren't better or worse. They're just different than my way. And it, I think, makes you more tolerant. Again, any of you who've moved a bunch can get that sense of what tolerance means. So the second reason I think I was okay when I moved from the south side of Chicago to Wymore was because I was in ministry. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. So today, we are dealing with one of the most famous sayings of Jesus. We're going through this series looking at the famous things Jesus said. And we have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Not a lot of folks realize that that story actually is preceded by the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the Pharisee. And that's a story, I think, of a lonely guy. Zacchaeus didn't feel great about being a Pharisee. He wanted, I think, a way out of this life that he was trapped into, and so he went to explore who Jesus was. And in these days in which there's such deep partisanship, we see just how inclusive Jesus was. We know he hung around with tax collectors and sinners and other people who were broken, but at the end of the day, we also see here that he was even willing to hang around with Pharisees, the ones who would ultimately take his life, because that's what he wanted to do was to hang out with those people who wanted to be faithful. Well, there are two assumptions made of this text because it's one of the most famous and yet I think one of the most misinterpreted texts in all of the Bible. We read, so God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. What we read in that is, if I believe in Jesus, I get to go to heaven. We also believe about that is if, if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't get into heaven. Neither of those things is true. And verse 17 should be that verse which actually helps to counteract that and prove that wrong. You should never see these two verses apart from each other. Indeed, John 3, 17, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We try to make so much of Christianity, especially in America, especially in these days, this me and Jesus thing. But those of us who study the Bible realize that Jesus really never talked about the faith in those terms. He really talked about it most specifically about the collective we in saving the world. This is the 57th anniversary week of um, the March on Washington in which Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And in 2005, I was privileged to hear his daughter, Bernice King, here in the Nebraska Synod give the keynote address at our Nebraska Synod Assembly. And she talked about this very thing. She made this point beautiful, beautifully. We see it now. We proclaim a gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for you and me. Jesus never proclaimed that gospel Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and we need to preach the same gospel Jesus did. While it's not a me and Jesus thing, it definitely has a personal aspect to it. We have a God who loves us so much that he would die, for sure. And that's important for us to know, right? From the very first time God spoke to Abraham and made this covenant, we get that sense of how important we are. This personal God who loves us so much. In Genesis 17, 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. 
the theme that goes through the Old Testament into the New Testament, which is actually comes to fruition in John 3, 16, 17, is I will be your God and you will be my people. And we need to start in that place. We need to start in that place. What does this mean for us in terms of our knowing ourselves? You need to know who you are. But even more than that, you need to know whose you are. You are God's child. You are a child of God, and God loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you. That's what got me through (laughs) the transitions, I suppose, uh, going from one place to another so often. But it was also that I was in ministry, to the second point, that I was in ministry when I was amidst those diverse places. Because my role in ministry, my job in ministry, whether I was a youth director or whether I was a pastor, whether I was a friend, my role was to let other people know that they are also a child of God and to try to get everyone else to know that first too. So that I know that I'm a child of God, but I also know that you are a child of God. And I'm telling you, that makes all the difference in the world, right? Because all of the hatred and divisions, all of the anger and frustration, it all really peels away, right? When you see that you are a child of God, the differences between you and the other children of God that are around you, they melt away and they disappear, In our world today, we've become so divisive. We've become so hate-filled and so mean-spirited. And it's because we've lost hold of these principles. We have to just hang around and um, associate with those people who look like us, who think like us, who believe like us, and everybody else, they're to be damned. And that's not what God wants for the world. Not at all. Have you noticed how fearful we are of messing up? Have you noticed how afraid we are? because there's so little grace in the world. No one forgives anymore because we don't see the person who needs the forgiveness as a child of God first, because we don't see ourselves in that way first. You know, I I go through times and phases where I get really owly and I get kind of burned out and I get frustrated and I can see how every relationship in my life is broken and frustrated and, and I just wind up sitting there going, everybody's the problem. And then I realize, no, it's probably that I'm the problem. And I take time and just reflect, and I try to steward and harbor this sense of first being a child of God, and then everyone that I'm at odds with to try to understand them in first light as a child of God. It makes a super big difference in terms of letting go one's anger and pain. Now, we can be lonely in the world. But if we know who we are and whose we are, it really helps to fill us full. I'll leave you with a poem from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. We've talked about Bonhoeffer before, and I've actually shared this poem years ago. But Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler. And he was a part of a resistance and opposition movement, and so he was taken, captured, and placed in a concentration camp. Um, he wrote um, in his time of confinement and wrote actually for the first time in his life, never had written poetry until that point, and actually wrote poetry there. 
He was um, widely published after his death. He died, actually, in, uh, about a week before Hitler was overthrown. Hitler ordered a mass execution in the concentration camps of um, folks who were not Jews, and, um, and he was hanged um, at, at that time in 1945. But he had a way about him when he was in the concentration camps. He, he actually befriended the guards and, um, and really came to this confusing sense of his own identity. And so he wrote this poem. Uh, it's long, and I apologize for that. I'm going to share, I'm going to pause during a midsection because even though it was written in 1945, it sounds like it could be written into the pandemic today. And so I raise this for you. The poem is called, Who Am I? by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from a country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. And here's where it sounds a lot like today. Am I then really that which other men tell of, or am I only what I know of myself, restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage? Struggling for breath as though hands were compressed on my throat. Yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds. Thirsting for words of kindness or neighborliness. Tossing in an expectation of great events. Powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance. Weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making. Faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? And before myself, a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is it something within me, still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from the victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God. I am thine. Friends, I hope that you know that you are a child of God. Know yourself so fully that it overflows. Know that you are a child of God so fully that it overthrows, overflows. Healing, divisions, bringing unity, and joining together with all people, even and especially those who are most different from you.